Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I hope you are still enjoying the new music for the show. As John Favreau noted on Pod Save America, it is, in fact, a banger. Great show for you today. So, so much has happened in the past week in foreign policy. First, Ben Rhodes is back in studio. We talk about two stories involving the White House's efforts to try to get options to strike Iran militarily. So those were unnerving. We talked about the whole basket of crazy Russia stories from this week. Trump is counterintelligence investigation, hiding the transcripts of his conversations with Vladimir Putin, and then wanting to pull out of NATO. Not great. We talked about Brexit. We talked about the World Bank, tensions with China, and then our Twitter troll U.S. ambassador to Germany. Then I'm joined by a Sudanese-American activist named Wafa May el We talked about the protests that have been roiling Sudan for the past several weeks and what it all means and how people back in the United States can organize and help. So, packed show for you today. I think you'll enjoy it. Here's the conversation with Ben. Ben Rhodes, back in studio. Back in studio. Landed this morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, 20-hour flight? Yeah, yeah. I have to say, the last time I talked to you, I don't think I'd slept in about 24 hours. So yeah. I apologize to you the were listeners for that. eight-hour layover <laughs> yeah. from 1 to 8 a.m. Uh, you just got back from Burma. Yeah. Anything you want to disclose before you do a bigger disclosure? No, I mean, I, look, I went there, talked to a bunch of people. I'm going to be writing about it. I'll keep you guys updated. But uh, they're dealing with a lot of problems yeah. in Burma, you know. Yeah, a lot uh, of problems. I mean, I hadn't been there. You know, the funny thing is the last time I was there... There was all this hope, you know, because uh, Aung San Suu Kyi just been elected. It felt like this moment of transition. And, you know, like a lot of places around the world. I mean, one of the interesting things to me is that, you know, I travel a lot. And and a lot of different places are in their own way going through their own (laughs) darkness, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And you hear a lot of the same trends, you know, nationalism, religious conflict, social media uh, playing a negative role. So it is interesting how there are these common challenges that you encounter everywhere, and the less developed a country is, the more susceptible they are to mm-hmm. those trends. Well, so. I cannot wait to yeah. read what you write about this. Uh, stay yeah, tuned. Yeah, we'll have a long talk about it. And yeah, I didn't. I got back and I didn't know it rained here. Oh like man, I, I moved here and I thought I'd land in the wrong place. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people have had that yeah. feeling the last couple of days. All right, let's dive into some right. scary shit. First little little Iran section, if you don't mind. Yes. So the Wall Street Journal reported that after some militants fired uh, three mortars near the U.S. embassy in Baghdad, John Bolton and the National Security Council staff asked the Pentagon to provide the White House with military options to strike Iran in response. Now, the mortars were fired by a Shiite militia group that's aligned with Iran. I should note that these Shia militia groups are not a new problem in Iraq. Yeah. They've The Iranians have been supporting them for a long time. They provide them armor-piercing bombs that were incredibly lethal yeah. uh, to U.S. convoys. So this is like a problem that has been big for a long time. But striking targets in Iran in response would be a pretty major escalation worth discussing. So what, what did you see this piece? What was your yeah. take? This is exactly what I've been worried about for a while now. You know, you have people in there like Bolton and Pompeo who have like an ideological view of Iran, mm-hmm. that we have to c- combat Iran, that essentially regime change is the only way to really change the dynamic there. And the thing that has always worried me is that separate even from the nuclear issue, there's always going to be some reason that you could potentially escalate with Iran. You know, there's things that happen 
on a fairly regular basis in the region that could be a flashpoint for an actual war. One of those is these, you know, confrontations inside of Iraq. They're in Yemen and Syria in the Straits of Hormuz, which is in the Persian Gulf there. There are a lot of areas mm -hmm. where if the U.S. is looking for a conflict, yep. they could escalate it. So as you said, there's nothing new about these Shia militias. They've been there for over a decade, you know, well back into the Bush administration. What, you know, Bolton could do is use that as a pretext to have a conflict. And I do think we all need to be very attuned to the fact that you know, as Trump is under investigation, as he can't get anything done domestically, you know, as his back is against a wall, the risk of him lashing out in the Middle East uh, against Iran is very high. And he has people like Bolton who could give him that pretext. And as difficult as things look now, um, you know, a war with Iran would be uh, yeah. more than a game changer. Well, so al along those same lines, I mean, John Bolton isn't the only one in this yeah. White House that wants yeah. to go to war with Iran. According to a report in Axios, Trump used to frequently ask then-Secretary Mattis, this was in the first year of the administration, for plans to blow up small Iranian patrol boats in the Persian Gulf. Again, not a new problem. These yeah. boats have been a pain in the ass for a long time. They harass our ships in the Gulf. There's a real concern that some boat could be loaded up with explosives and do something very stupid that would spark a major conflict, especially since, you know, this is in the Strait of Hormuz where something like 30% yeah. of global oil exports pass through annually. So it's a serious issue, but I'd also note that you can like watch videos of these boats online and often it's like a, a dinky yeah. little speedboat yeah. driving around an aircraft carrier. So like the disproportionate powers pretty clearly demonstrated. But again, Ben, like, so blowing up one of these boats would be a major escalation and an act of war. And I guess Mattis just refused to give him options. Yeah. And, you know, we looked at the scenarios of escalation when we were in office and, you know, it can escalate very quickly. Mm -hmm. so, so let's say we take out one of these boats, then the Iranians could fire back at our vessels or they could attack our embassy in Baghdad through these Shia militias. And then we could bomb more targets inside of Iran. Then the Iranians could have Hezbollah attack Israel. Right. And within like, you know, a day or two, you could end up in a full-blown war, you know. Um, and so that's why I think we all have to be very mindful of this and watch it very closely because, again, not hard to find a pretext for a conflict with Iran. There's a lot of friction in the region. There are a lot of places where we're in kind of close quarters with them. And frankly, one of the reasons why I think Mattis probably didn't want to do this is that, you know, that could lead immediately to us being pushed out of Iraq because mm -hmm. they could overrun our embassy there. It could lead to a conflagration in Syria. It could lead to a conflict in Israel. You know, even if we did regime change in Iran, Iran has a, a more sophisticated military than Iraq did when we invaded Iraq. So this would be a real war. This yeah. would be something that could make the Iraq war pale by comparison. And again, if you take Trump's kind of bizarre, increasingly isolated personality and you mix it with Bolton and Pompeo's ideology, we've got uh, two years where this is going to be a real ever-present danger. Yeah. And it, it was interesting to me that Mattis was really resisting providing these options because you know, he was asked to retire early if, during the Obama administration because he was viewed as being too hawkish with respect to Iran. And I think it was specifically regarding yes. these ships, these yeah. small ships in the Strait of Hormuz. Well, and Iraq. I, I was in those meetings. And, and Mattis, actually, back in the day when he was a uh, Central Command commander for Obama, he was raising the issue of should we hit Iranian targets inside of Iran 
in return for what they were doing with these Shia militias inside mm-hmm. of Iraq. So what changed Mattis? Um, probably the realization that he worked for a president who wasn't going to be able to control escalation. Mm-hmm. You know, if Trump gets into a conflict, you can see him just ratcheting it up and escalating. Whereas I think Mattis probably just assumed that Obama was temperamentally more disciplined um, and not willing to essentially throw the United States into another major military conflict in the Middle East. So the fact that Mattis, frankly, shifted from his own position under Obama shows you just how concerned he was that Trump couldn't be potentially trusted as commander in chief to mm-hmm. be rational and responsible in, in the use of military force. And again, we should say that like the, Iran does a lot of bad things. Like That's why we imposed sanctions on them. Yep. That's why we didn't want them to get a nuclear weapon. That's why we did the Iran deal. These guys have been nothing but tough talk on Iran. They haven't really what, what are the results that they can point to? No, no. None of the Iranian behavior has changed. Even though, remember, Trump said, oh, Iran's changed because I pulled out of the nuclear deal. That's clearly not the case. But the way in which you deal with that is, you know, number one, I think, to have the Iran deal in place so they can't get a nuclear weapon. But number two, you have to work with other countries. You know, you have to work with the Europeans. You have to build kind of a global effort to contain and ultimately try to roll back some of this Iranian behavior. Trump has actually made that harder mm-hmm. by isolating the United States. Yeah, you're right. There's not anything I can point to that's tougher on Iran. Yeah. Though I would note, it does sound like the harassment from these small boats has tailed off in the last year or so, but no one seems to know why. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think we saw patterns over the course of the eight years we were in office where sometimes the harassment would tick up, mm-hmm. sometimes it would go down. You know, probably tied to some internal Iranian politics. Sure, yeah. You know, they want to flex their muscles every now and then. So, uh, again, I think the risks of there being a flashpoint are high. The Iranians have been somewhat restrained thus far on their nuclear program. They're staying in the deal. However, the head of their nuclear program, uh, Salehi, uh, recently uh, made some comments that they were thinking about restarting their enrichment. Oh, good. Um, which would, yeah, exactly, which would not be good. Uh, and which, again, would be just yet another potential pretext for a conflict. So hopefully the Europeans can keep the Iranians in the nuclear deal for the next two years um, so that we don't have to worry about that. But I do think we have to worry about whether Bolton and Pompeo, Mm -hmm. who just went on this kind of crazy magical mystery tour of the Middle East, it was all about, you know, attacking Iran rhetorically, attacking Obama rhetorically, uh, embracing MBS. Uh, I mean, let's, how crazy it is that, you know, the Secretary of State of the United States is sitting there chuckling it up with MBS like less than a few months after he had a journalist murdered in Turkey, right? So all, all of these factors, you know, I know everybody's got a lot on their minds with the shutdown and a lot of other things, but I'm telling you the wild card for the next two years is the risk of, of a potential war with Iran. Yeah, yeah, it's not good. So you go away for a week, and yeah. there's like three blockbuster Russia yeah. stories. I'm going to tick through them real quick. First, the New York Times reports that the FBI was so nervous about Trump's behavior that they opened a counterintelligence investigation against him. Second, the Washington Post reported that Trump is so worried about U.S. officials learning what he discussed with Vladimir Putin in their one-on-one meetings that he forbid his interpreter from talking about it uh, and at one point <laughs> took her notes away. Yeah. Yeah. Third, and this was today, Tuesday, the New York Times reported that last year Trump repeatedly told his aides that he wanted to pull out of NATO. Good God. In my mind, these stories are all intertwined. Yeah. So you know, pick your poison. Story. Where do you want to start? 
What's your favorite? Uh, what's your favorite yeah. disaster story? Well, look, I, I think. Well, first of all, Greg Miller, the Post reporter, reached out to me uh, on that story, and he said, "Hey, would you guys ever take the notes away from a, an interpreter? Tell the interpreter not to share the notes." I'm like, "No." Um, I mean, first of all, because interpreters are, you know, they're civil servants, and right. they're not policy aides. So for Trump to go to that length. It speaks to a degree of paranoia that Seriously. is crazy. I mean, you know, first of all, if we met with Putin, if Obama met with Putin, if there was something really sensitive that you want to talk about, we would go down to what's called a one-on-one meeting. However, a one-on-one meeting, we would always have the National Security Advisor in, right? So Susan Rice would be in there, Tom Donilon, in part because you need somebody in there to know what was discussed, to follow up on it, to back brief the rest of the government, right? Mm-hmm. The fact that Trump not only didn't want an aide in the meeting, but then was concerned about the what the translator had in their notes should is chilling to me. I yeah. mean, what is he so paranoid about that they're discussing, right? Well, can I ask you a quick question? So, like, let's say there's a really sensitive meeting at a G20 on the margins. Yeah. B- Obama grabs Bibi Netanyahu, the national security advisors, and they yeah. talk about a really sensitive detail of Iran's nuclear program. How is that meeting then appropriately read out to the people who need to know in a normal case? So that happened a lot, and the National Security Advisor would essentially handpick, you know, which aides needed to know something. They would, you know, call us in. I was usually in that group and into their office and say, okay, here's what they discussed. Don't tell anybody the details of this. However, you need to know this to do your job, right? So then the aides could, in working with the State Department, the Defense Department, you know, be informed by that conversation, mm-hmm. even if they weren't necessarily telling everybody in the government exactly what was said. Right. But you need somebody to, to be able to implement what was discussed. Put it this way, Tommy. Let's look at it from a different perspective. What is the purpose of a president of the United States talking to the president of Russia and not having anybody in his government know about it, right? There's no purpose to that conversation. If nobody can follow up on what was discussed, then it's meaningless for the purposes of U.S. interest, right? So if Trump feels like he's the only one who should know what was discussed, then clearly what was discussed is something that is only of interest to Trump. Mm -hmm. It's not of interest to the rest of the U.S. government. It's not of interest to our national security. It's just in Trump's personal interest. Now, that leads to this NATO point, right, which is, let's say Trump has this discussion with Putin. I am sure that Putin would make the case that you don't need to be in NATO. Oh, you're right. You know, Mm -hmm. you should be pulling out. So then Trump takes that on board, potentially, and suddenly he's arguing to pull out of NATO. So that leads to the the other crazy story, which is that there's no possible reason for the United States to pull out of NATO. None. None. Zero. This is an alliance that has basically guaranteed our global influence, our influence in Europe and the security of Europe for 70 years, right? right? I mean, it's been a good deal for us. Remember World War II? Yeah. That was bad. We prevented a World War III because we had a NATO, right, that that was strong enough as a collective uh, defense alliance to deter Russia from, you know, aggression inside of Europe. And, you know, sure, we may want them to spend more on their defense, but to, to take the leap to then just pulling out of NATO would totally unravel U.S. alliances, the security architecture that has governed Europe and prevented another world war, and it is something that is profoundly in Russia's interest and not at all in ours. Russia hates NATO because it's a collective defense alliance right on their border. Former Soviet republics are in uh, NATO. They hate that. 
and so this is something that Russia wants that is that nobody, nobody. can mount an argument is in our interest, right? Yeah. There's there, there are some people out there who could say some of these things Trump is doing, you know, maybe we should pull out of these wars or maybe, you know, maybe we should get tough with China on trade. Certainly not in the way that he's been doing it, but you could make those arguments. There, there's not any constituency in this country that is like, you know, yes, it's time to pull out of NATO. It's only in Russia's interest. And that leads to the first time story, which is, is he a Russian agent? <laughs> you know, and it's hard to explain any other reason for Trump to want to pull out of NATO other than the fact that Russia wants us to pull out of NATO. Mm-hmm. Um, now, whether that makes him a Russian agent, whether he's compromised by Russia and he's embarrassed by that, you know, we don't know. But again, this could be different things. It doesn't necessarily mean that he was brainwashed by Russia and he's a Manchurian candidate. But it could mean that Russia has plenty of compromising information on Trump. Maybe it's financial. Maybe mm-hmm. it's personal. Maybe it's a, that Trump knows that Russia knows what they did with him in collusion to swing the 2016 election. And if he has in the back of his head, wow, if the Russians put this information out, I'm in trouble. If essentially Russia can blackmail Trump, then he is as good as a Russian agent to yeah. Vladimir Putin. Right. And that would explain him constantly praising Putin, not standing up to Putin, taking these positions that make no sense. Why is Vladimir Putin the only person on earth, other than maybe Kim Jong-un recently, that he won't criticize? These, this is not just some you know rogue FBI agents who were upset about Jim Comey. I think we all, as Americans, have plenty of reason now to ask, is the President of the United States compromised when it comes to Russia? And the fact that we're talking about that uh, is chilling. It's just so... so you, some days you need to step back and just remember yeah. how bonkers this it's is. It's bonkers. If, we, if you and I had had this conversation in 2016, we would have laughed it off at like a bad movie plot. But here we are. Uh, yeah. I mean, I... The most serious people in the government. Like, Jim Comey aside. But like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and we should say, too, by the way, Russia's already getting what it wants. Like, we don't even have to pull out NATO. Like, this dysfunction in the U.S. Yeah. Like, the shutdown it is good for them. Russia, right? The U.S. having no credibility around the world because of Trump is good for them. People not knowing whether we're pulling out of Syria or not, that's good for them. Like, they're getting more than a return on their investment. So, okay. Not great. No, it's bad. <laughs> no, it's, great. Bad. it's really speaking of disasters, the British Parliament just rejected Prime Minister Theresa May's Brexit deal by a vote of four hundred and thirty two to two oh two. That is Tight. brutal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, said he's planning to offer a motion of no confidence about May, so this is a disaster. Do you have uh, we should talk to David Lammy again soon? Yeah, yeah he's get that really guy. cool. Love that um, guy. Is there any clarity on what's next for Theresa May or Brexit or the future of the UK? No. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> has a fucking idea what, what is going on. I mean, here's the the they're basically two options now that people can see. I mean, one is that on March 29th, when the deadline for the Brits to leave, right? So Theresa May filed these papers to leave the EU two years ago from March 29th. So by March 29th, they're supposed to leave the EU, right? If nothing changes. If they leave without a deal, they're completely and utterly fucked, you know? I mean, they're like stockpiling food and they're preparing for planes not to be able to land in the UK because, again, if they have no agreement with the EU over what their border is, what their trade relationship is, you know, everything from how food comes into the UK from Europe to how they sell things to the Europeans all goes into question. Mm -hmm. And there'll be a dramatic economic shock to the UK for that. There are estimates that already like a trillion dollars has left the UK just out of preparation for Brexit. I mean, their economy could go off a serious cliff. There'll be profound uncertainty. 
And she spent two years doing just this. Imagine just, they a do government they do that is only else. focus on one thing and yeah. then it fails 432 to 202. Yeah, you go there. And, and we should add, like, the reason why this is such a train wreck is the Brexit campaign was run on a bunch of lies, mm-hmm. right? Oh, we can leave and have all the benefits of the common market with the Europeans and none of the pain. Uh, we're going to get more money somehow for our national health insurance. Nobody quite understands how they made that case. They said they were going to have to pay the EU to leave. They are going to have to pay, Theresa May says, tens of billions of dollars. So because they were lies, as soon as people could see what the actual deal looked like, they're like, well, we don't want to do this, right? right? right. But it's because all these charlatans, all, all these people like you know Boris Johnson you know, sold the British people a, a bag of lies now they, there's no deal that can pass the parliament, right? The only option, and this is something that David Lammy and s- some others have really been pushing in the UK, is to have another vote on this, to have another yeah, referendum and have people just say like, to. yeah, and, and, and there's a case for it, which is like, hey, now you guys know <laughs> what the real cost of Brexit is. Do you really want to do this, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and let the people it? decide. Well, that's the other thing is like, it hasn't gotten as much attention as here, but they have uncovered that there was foreign financing of this stuff of the brexit campaign there was russian intervention you know, russia social media campaigns so there's there's plenty of a basis for them to say you know what we've learned a lot because keep in mind that first referendum was just the expressed will of the people it wasn't like a binding referendum it was like because the people have spoken we have to brexit so there's no reason they can't put the question back to the people and say okay you know nobody likes this deal Theresa may had do we really want to do this knowing what we know now? And I think they have one shot to get this right. They get they get what we don't get with the Trump. They get a do-over, yeah. and they should take it. Great work, David Cameron. Positive of the World is brought to you by Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. Sure does. They strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. Robinhood is a non-intimidating way for the stock market newcomer to invest for the first time with true confidence. Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every single trade. That is highway robbery, guys. But Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees, trade stocks, and you keep all of your profits. You can place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. The Robinhood web platform also lets you view stock collections like entertainment, social media, and curated categories like female CEOs, as well as analyst ratings of buy, hold, sell for every stock. Sounds good to me. Learn how to invest as you build your portfolio. Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. A stock. Sign up at savetheworld.robinhood.com. That's savetheworld.robinhood.com. Um, Pod Save the World is also brought to you by Policy Genius. Getting life insurance is one of the more intimidating parts of becoming a full-fledged adult. There's so many options, it's hard to know where to start. But making sure your family is financially protected is too important to avoid. So Policy Genius created a website that makes it easy for you to compare quotes, get advice, and get covered without extra fees or commissioned sales agents. In minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers, and burp into my ad read. <laughs> In minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurance to find the coverage you need at a price you can afford. From there, you can apply online, and the advisors of Policy Genius will handle all of the red you guys, tape. You guys know who burp, right? It was me. It was love it. They'll even negotiate your rate with the insurance company. It's all part of their best price guarantee. They know I'm lying. At Policy Genius doesn't just make life insurance easy, whether you're shopping for disability insurance to protect your home 
Whether you're shopping for disability insurance to protect your income, homeowner's insurance, or auto insurance, they can help you get covered fast. If you've been intimidated or frustrated by insurance in the past, start your research at policygenius.com. In minutes, you can compare quotes and apply. You can even do the whole thing on your phone right now as you listen to this podcast. Policy Genius, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Another major story uh, the past couple of weeks really is that the the current president of the World Bank abruptly stepped down. So now Trump is tasked with naming a successor. This morning, Donald, Donald or Ivanka? <laughs> well, this morning, <laughs> the New York Times reported that Ivanka Trump is helping lead that search. And amazingly, Ben, uh, they had to go on record to say that she was not under consideration. Mm. So good to know. Can you just give the one-on-one of what the hell the World Bank does? And like, you were part of the search process yeah, back yeah. in the day. What is it? What should it be like? Well, you know, the World Bank is kind of the preeminent organization that lends money, provides financing, funds projects all over the world on behalf of our development priorities. You know, if, if we're seeking to help a country that is uh, dealing with development challenges, if we're seeking to provide financing to support certain foreign policy priorities that we have or, or that the world agrees on, you know, the World Bank is usually on the front lines, you know, so in places like Africa and Southeast Asia, um, it used to be in Latin America, the bank is very active essentially in, you know, helping to build up economies that's in our interest ultimately because mm-hmm. they've become markets for us, it, helping to prevent conflict, helping to prevent state failure. You know, so the World Bank plays a key role. We've had this kind of tacit agreement for many years with the Europeans where, because we're the biggest shareholder in the bank, we pay the most money into it. We get to select the leader of the World Bank Mm -hmm. and the Europeans get to select the leader of the IMF. So if people are wondering why there's always some euro running the International Monetary Fund, which kind of is a a partner in these efforts with the bank and we provide the World Bank, it's because we have this kind of handshake agreement with the Europeans, which, by the way, increasingly pisses off countries like China Mm -hmm. and India and other developing countries. We actually tried to address that. So the last search you know, we decided we wanted someone with serious development experience and somebody who had some diversity in their background, right? So Jim Kim was, you know, a Korean-American, you know, at least presents a diverse face to the world to lead the bank. Um, Normally what you'd be looking for, again, is somebody with an experience in international development so they can go into these countries that have serious problems and help them figure it out, Mm -hmm. right? Ivanka (laughs) Ivanka Trump would not fit that mold. I, you know, I think generally, Tommy, another thing that hasn't got a lot of attention is how this administration, you know, doesn't value foreign assistance, has right. been gutting or trying to gut budgets for foreign aid. Congress has restored some of that funding. I'm not hopeful that they're going to go about this in a smart way. And what they could do, frankly, is, you know, be so incompetent that the rest of the world kind of blows the whistle on this mm-hmm. arrangement where we essentially get to pick the head of the bank. Uh, and that would be just yet another diminution of American influence under Trump. Yeah, I'd probably choose fucking Corey Lewandowski or something. Yeah, idiot. yeah. I mean, th- when I hear about things like this, I, it just it reminds me of the number of unbelievably important personnel decisions that they're making yeah. all day, every day that we don't even have time to talk about mostly because we're, I don't know, dealing with three stories about him being yeah. owned by Russia. Um, this is a story you flagged. A Canadian citizen in China has been sentenced to death after a court convicted him of drug smuggling. It's going to inflame tensions between Ottawa and Beijing, presumably. Specifically, the guy was accused of planning the smuggling of nearly 500 pounds of meth to Australia. 
Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, criticized a ruling which comes as their relations have been strained because the Canadians picked up a senior executive from the Chinese tech firm Huawei in Vancouver last month. So this seems fraught and exactly the kind of escalation that you feared when we first talked about this story. Yeah, I mean, remember, so the Canadians picked up this Huawei executive, uh, apparently at uh, at our asking, Trump's asking. Then the Chinese arrested two Canadians, uh, a guy who works for the crisis group, a former diplomat, another guy who they haven't even really charged yet. They're just right. holding these guys for violating Chinese national security. It's basically obvious that this was intended to pressure the Canadians over Huawei. Then they take this guy who was appealing his sentence. You know, he claims he was set up. He didn't do this. And the appeal in one day, the Chinese came back and said, actually, we're going to put you to death, right? So the fact that they didn't even take a day in court to ratchet up this guy's sentence from 15 years to a death sentence makes it pretty painfully obvious that they're intending to uh, intimidate the Canadians. Again, I think what this should cause everybody concern about is kind of shows you what happens. You know, there's been a lot of talk about the U.S. under Trump walking away from norms, walking away from kind of commonly accepted ways of of working between countries. This kind of shows you what the world might look like if countries just start, you know, asserting themselves based on we're a big country, we can do whatever we want. Mm -hmm. So China's looking at Canada and they're saying, well, we're bigger than Canada. We can push them around. We can detain your citizens without charging them. We can potentially put one of your citizens to death because we don't like what you did in picking up this Huawei person. I, I think it's a very dangerous signal about where the world could go if the U.S. is pulling back from operating under commonly established norms and seeking to make the international system work uh, under you know un- commonly understood practices and, and agreements and laws, right? And it's hard to see what the way out is here. I mean, I've talked to some Canadians. You know, they really don't control their judicial system. So there's an extradition request for this Huawei person with, from the U.S. They detain the woman. And it's kind of up to a Canadian judge whether or not to hand the woman over to the U.S., mm-hmm. right? So, you know, Trudeau's hands are kind of tied here because it's not even like he's the one making that determination. Jesus. But again, I, I, you know, I think the Chinese, of course, I mean, we should say are overplaying their hand because, you know, Western business people who are right. very important in the Chinese economy are going to be a little concerned about doing business there. Yeah, no shit. You know, if this happens. So... You know, I think uh, we should you know, point the finger where it deserves to be pointed, which is China. They're the ones responsible for this kind of grotesque escalation. But we should also recognize that, you know, this is part of a symptom of how the Trump people have essentially said they don't care about international rules. Well, this is what happens when countries don't follow international rules. Yeah, agreed. Last one, a little bit of a fun one. Yeah. So, you know, back in the day, Donald Trump named a walking Twitter troll to be his U.S. ambassador to Germany, which is the most important country in the EU. Uh, it's a guy named Rick Grinnell. Surprise, surprise, when you, you know, make someone an ambassador who is known to be misogynistic, to just viciously attack journalists and, yeah. and any other critics on Twitter, it doesn't go well. Uh, Der Spiegel did a story about how he's basically persona non grata in, in Germany. No one but the far-right political parties will meet with him. He has been openly meddling in German politics. He seems to spend most of his time doing Fox News interviews to get noticed back in the U.S. So, uh, you know, Rick Grinnell is, is not a, a nice guy. He's not well-suited to the job of ambassador. But what do you think this costs us 
as a country in terms of our relationship with Germany? Like when an ambassador can't get a meeting with the people in power, does it actually hurt us? Yes. I mean, <laughs> and like, you know, Rick Grinnell, I mean, that guy would troll the shit out of us in government. I'd be like, well, this guy like this is never going to be yeah. a, a future Republican. I just muted him because I thought he was too nuts. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it, this guy would never be appointed by a normal Republican president anymore. You know, I mean, he was a UN spokesperson when John Bolton was there. First of all, I mean, I loved our UN spokespeople, you know, Mark Cornblue and Aaron Pelton. Mm-hmm. But I think they'd be the first to say that they wouldn't expect to be named ambassador to Germany, you know. Yep. The point is that Mar- uh, Rick Grinnell did not get appointed ambassador because he had the requisite qualifications. He got appointed because he's a troll. You know, he got appointed because he owns the libs on Twitter and goes on Fox News. That's how Donald Trump makes his appointments. But this is the most important country in Europe and one of the most important countries in the world. And since he got there, Rick Grinnell has basically been like a grenade with a pin pulled, you know, ever since he arrived in Berlin. And, you know, he's attacked Angela Merkel. He's embraced the, the far right. We should have an ambassador there, by the way, who's trying to help the German government push back against the far right. There's not a really good history of the far right in Germany, okay? <laughs> yeah. Like, like you generally want to, to keep that, you know, it's bad enough in, in Hungary and Poland. Like, yeah. you generally want to keep that uh, Google in Google Nazi, box. Rick. Yeah, you know. And the fact that our ambassador like, can't even get a meeting with the German government because he's just a walking troll just shows you how much like the U.S. has no influence anymore. Like we have so many things that we should be working with Germany on, you know, like like Iran, like the global economy, you know, like the future of the EU with Brexit. Right. Mm -hmm. Like you'd want somebody in there right now saying, like, what are we going to do if there's a hard Brexit and the Brits leave the EU? Our ambassador should be having that meeting. But Trump doesn't care about diplomacy. He cares about owning the libs, I guess, you know, and you know, Rick Grinnell spends more time doing Fox News interviews. I, I don't think our ambassadors in Germany, Phil Murphy, who's now the governor of New Jersey, John Emerson, like did. Were like beloved, by yeah, the way, yeah, still. We, they were beloved there. They didn't do like cable news hits from Germany because they were oh. actually doing their job. And, and I, Everyone I, we named to be an ambassador fell in love with the place they were, yeah, yeah. were living totally in. Totally And captive. went all in. All in. Totally, all in. yeah. I, you know, but what shows you is these guys, I mean, the, the ties, all this stuff that we've been talking about together, Tommy, is that they don't know what they actually want to do. Yeah. Right? They hated Obama. They attacked Obama. They hate diplomacy. They hate the Europeans. They hate the libs. And so they get into government, and they have no idea what the fuck to actually do in government. Right. right? There's no plan. So Rick Grinnell's out there giving Fox News interviews. Mike Pompeo's, like, giving speeches in Cairo attacking Barack Obama. Like, nothing is happening as it relates to actually containing Iranian influence. We're absent from the debates about the future of Europe, which are really profoundly in our interest. The president of the United States is a Russian agent who wants to pull out of NATO. Like, they don't have a, 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 any ideas, right? Because this is what happens when you put a bunch of arsonists, like, in charge of the fucking fire department, right? And, you know, we're all going to be paying the price for this for, for years. Yeah. Uh, Rick, just resign. Come back. Troll us from stateside. Ben, this has been fun. Yeah, yeah. A little depressing, but fun. Yeah. It, it's going to get it off my it's, chest. It's, in- <laughs> it's interesting, at least, right? I mean, yeah, it is very interesting. Uh, it is great to have you back stateside in studio. Uh, thank you for calling in from your layover, but yes. I, I hope you never do that to yourself again because that was... Yeah, it was kind of grim. I, I, I had a 1 a.m. to 7 a.m. layover in the Singapore airport, which is like kind of a... a is fun- anything open? It's kind of a funky place overnight. Not really. There's like a bunch of like like weird backpackers sleeping in the airport, you know. I did not have the Tom Friedman experience, <laughs> right? Of like breezing through like some palatial 
Chinese airports, it made me realize the importance of infrastructure. But, <laughs> maybe next time. Yeah, maybe next time. And when we come back, my conversation with Wafa May Elami. Pod Save the World is brought to you by Stamps.com. Want a New Year's resolution you can actually keep? Yes. Stop going to the post office to send letters and packages when you don't have to. Save time and money this year by using Stamps.com instead. Stamps.com is the faster, more convenient way to get postage. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere. Will someone get it for me? And the mail carrier picks it up. No more logging to the post office. Stamps, stamps, stamps. No more hassles, guys. Stamps.com will not only save you time, it saves you money, too. With Stamps.com, you get discounted postage rates that you can't even get at the post office. Not to mention, it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters everyone hates. But what would I be able, I wouldn't be able to do anything. With, I needed some kind of a way to weigh things. There's no equipment to lease and no long-term commitments. You get a digital scale, uh, too. Woo-hoo. I use Stamps.com it's a huge because relief. it's easy, it's convenient, and it saves us money at Crooked Media. And right now, you can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale. Start the new year off right. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Crooked World. That's Stamps.com. Enter the code Crooked World. You ready? Love it. All right. All right. Let's do it. I'm doing a mini as we do. You go do it. Right. Positive the World is brought to you by the New York Times crossword puzzle. Starting. And he has begun. And a love mini it puzzle. is off. Have you ever played the New York Times crossword puzzle? Love it is doing it right Ooh, now. Nothing yet. Nothing People yet. get obsessed Ooh, with it. Still well, nothing yet. Did you know you that it. it's a bite-sized version that's just as clever it's but blank. a whole it's lot blank. faster? It's blank. I think he's having it's some trouble. It's called the mini puzzle. And it's got all the fun and wordplay that people love only about the classic word. crossword, only smaller. Yikes. You can fit in a few puzzles while riding the bus in between meetings or waiting for the pizza guy to finally show up. Three. There's a new mini puzzle daily with brand new clues to keep your mind sharp. A lot of square, a lot of empty squares. Since most here. people solve the mini puzzle in about two minutes or less, you can challenge yourself uh, uh, just about uh, anywhere. What's anywhere. You had a couple minutes, discover wordplay every trouble. day. Play the mini puzzle for time well spent. Forest key. Oh, oh, you can download the left. New York Times crossword app at nytimes.com Got it. slash crossword puzzle. Oh, wow. NYTimes.com <gasps> slash crossword puzzle. That was a tight a crossword one. puzzle so simple that even love it could do. <laughs> On the line from Richmond, Virginia is Wafa May Elamin. She is a Sudanese American activist. Wafa, thank you so much for doing the show. Of course. Thank you so much for having me, Tommy. So there have been protests in Sudan for several weeks now. For those who haven't been following this as closely as we have, why are these protesters out on the street in Sudan? They've been there since mid-December. What are they protesting? So people have taken to the streets in Sudan. It's been about a three-week-long ordeal that's been happening, and people are just taking to the streets to kind of just tell their leaders and people in power that, you know, they're just fighting for their basic rights, their economy improvement, access to education, health care. It's just kind of been the last breaking point for the country as a whole and its people. Mm-hmm. Um, so people have taken to what they know, and that's to kind of peacefully protest, walk the streets, and um, just say justice and peace, and really just do it collectively. So that's really the main reason people are really, really, really seeing that the conditions in Sudan have reached a point where people are no longer able to sustain themselves, people are dying, getting sick. So it's just one of those things where um, Sudanese people are very steadfast and we tend to be resilient and um, stand up for what we believe is right. And a lot of people believe that having access to things that would give them better opportunities is a step in that direction. And mm-hmm. that's how they're doing it through these protests. 
I should note how incredibly brave uh, these protesters are. Sudan has been dealing with a pretty awful leader for a long time. Uh, Omar al-Bashir is a horrendous human being. He took power around 30 years ago in a military coup and now holds the distinction of being the first president indicted by the International Criminal Court or ICC for his role in the genocide in Darfur. So a historically awful human being. How is he reacting to the protests so far? There has been, he's made a few appearances to talk about the protests and to guarantee the citizens that him and his administration plan to uh, make changes and hear the cries of the communities and the people. So he's taken a lot of time to be able to respond in that way and has shown that they're listening and that's something that's happened before in the past. And I think people are really just still taking to the streets just to remind the leaders that, you know, we want to hold you guys accountable for representing us and doing right by the people. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the biggest things is he's gone and had marches, but he's had speeches. He also led a million march in Sudan as well. So there's a lot of, he's responding and his administration is responding to the protests. And that's a big, big deal because a lot of times Sudanese people or just people in general who are feeling the impacts of inequalities, mm-hmm. they tend to not be able to they don't feel heard. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's what these protests are doing. They're giving people voices and the right people are listening. Yeah. So in, in a little more background, in 2011, South Sudan uh, broke off, seceded, whatever you want to call it, uh, had independence and became its own independent state. It was mm-hmm. a long, fraught process for many reasons that went back to the Bush administration in several decades. But part of that process meant that 75% of the former Sudan's oil reserves are now in the south. Uh, and Bashir and what the protests we're talking about right now are in the north. Has that 2011 referendum and the subsequent shift in resources and resource allocation contributed to these protests? Because I was reading that, you know, there was a massive increase in the price of bread and other staples and inflation. And a lot of this seems to be very, uh, you know, a lot of economic hardship sounds like it's driving some of these protests. So I think that, you know, in regards to the secession of South Sudan, that was very much so the liberty of the Sudanese people. South Sudanese people, they also did That was their revolution. That's what they protested for, was for their independence and for their rights and for their autonomy. And yeah, majority of the oil reserves are in South Sudan, but I think the economic conditions in Sudan have been declining far before 2011, Mm -hmm. since before, you know, it's been just a steady decline for the last 30 years, I want to say. It's been going in that direction. Mm -hmm. And it's really, really shown now, especially last year with the lifting of the U.S. sanctions, in Sudan as an attempt to kind of increase more opportunities and more investment and development in the country. It's kind of had a negative, the opposite effect with inflation being higher than it's ever been in a really, really long time. So I think that there is a correlation to what's happened in South Sudan, but Sudan itself is a very resource-rich area and can also benefit and profit in its own ways. So I think just understanding the size of Sudan as a whole before the split and how it's still one of the largest countries after the split in Africa, I think that's also very important to note that the resources extend far beyond the oil reserves there. So I think Mm -hmm. just understanding that the secession of South Sudan, I think that's also another thing that's really important is to voice that South Sudanese people fought for their independence and fought for their freedom a lot. There's a lot of parallels that we can tie into that with what's happening today, the same reasons they fought for economic independence and 
all of that, and that's what people are currently doing when they take to the streets, is they're fighting for that kind of independence, that kind of liberty, and that kind of freedom to be able to have the foundations established by their governments and by the people in power to represent them to be able to sustain life. Right. Yeah, I should note that there should be more than enough resources to feed, clothe, house people in Sudan if you had good leadership. Mm -hmm. So brings me back to Bashir. I mean, I've seen activists quoted saying that Bashir is weaker than he's ever been, um, that he might be at risk of the military and security services turning on him. Notably, some former political allies have turned on him. Do you think that there are signs of the movement is loosening Bashir's grip on power, or do you worry that that's wishful thinking? I think that I like to kind of focus more on the people, and I mm-hmm. think what the movement is doing, it's strengthening the people themselves. And that's what we've seen a lot, I guess, globally speaking, in regards to revolutions and change, is it comes, it stems first from a grassroots level, and that's what's unique about these protests and how it's working. It's coming from a bottom-up approach where the narrative is coming from Sudanese people and communicating that out. But I definitely think that it is showing that the grip of the government is getting weaker, but I think that's just because in correlation to the grip of the Sudanese people, it's getting stronger. That unity is becoming stronger in Sudan itself. So I think we see that immediately with the response to the protests from you know, the security forces, Mm -hmm. you know, they're using live ammunition, they're using tear gas. A few days ago, they actually um, tear gassed the hospital and an intensive care unit in Umdurman, and people were there getting treated for the tear gas and having been shot while peacefully protesting. And, you know, it's just showing that with this increased use of force, there is a little bit of intimidation from the administration Mm -hmm. to kind of just they're recognizing the power of the people. And I think that's the most important thing is the people are all powerful too. Um, and power doesn't only lie within the people who are with the government. Right. I've seen some reports of journalists getting arrested. I've seen other reports of uh, maybe social media getting locked down. Maybe you can use a VPN to get around that. I'm not sure. But I mean, how difficult is it to communicate with people in Sudan right now? So communicating with people in Sudan you know, it's a hit or miss. There are certain avenues where people have been able to navigate around it. Um, from the 2013 uprisings um, and the protests that happened around the same time, there's kind of been a common theme. They always happen around the Sudan Independence Day, which is January 1st, um, and that's when Sudanese people feel the most prideful in being Sudanese. So it's a common theme. The 2013 ones happened in December. This one is also ha- started in December. And I think journalists have been getting arrested in large numbers because they are the ones who are sharing that information out and trying to attempting to disseminate it to the rest of the country as well as the rest of the world. And in response, there has been internet blocks on certain apps and people haven't been able to communicate with their families at certain points. And that's really, really scary for a lot of us as members of the diaspora, who all of our family is in Sudan, to kind of know that we can't, we don't know what's going on. So in an attempt to kind of alleviate that, the Sudanese diaspora community has attempted to just use our voices um, because we kind of have that barrier of safety mm-hmm. with where I, I'm from, the, we're in the U.S., so we have freedom of press and freedom of speech, whereas in Sudan they don't necessarily have that. That's often met with extreme force and violence. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's been, people have found different ways around the blocks that come up, and then it's still, like, large quantities. There was, I think it was, like, a net, um, it's 
study showed what apps and what usage is being blocked, and a lot of it was WhatsApp. Hmm. And WhatsApp happens to be the main way that um, people communicate in Sudan because there is no freedom of press. That's how that's the that's the news platform for um, the people. Is how they share information amongst themselves, and it's so quick with this Asian technology to be able right. to communicate with everyone. And that's quite frankly how the diaspora has heard about it is because we got we get timely reports from people in Sudan of what's going on, and it's kind of our responsibility and our due diligence to to do what I'm doing right now with you. So by speaking to you and have hopefully more people will be able to hear this and engage in the conversation and spread the word and raise awareness about what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, um, additionally, you, you shared on Twitter a platform where people can get a better sense of what's happening on the ground in Sudan. What are you hoping will be the effect of those images and video clips getting circulated and getting more visibility on social media? My hope is just to kind of keep the conversation going. And I think that's kind of a similar hope for everyone going on, just knowing that you know, extreme violence and force is the first response from very strong leaders um, who, you know, use that kind of um, tactic to, I guess, control their constituents. I think the main hope is just to let Sudan know that, um, you know, the diaspora is standing with you and we are also feeling the same pain. So when I share photos and videos and pictures online, it's just to show people about what's raising awareness about what's going on in the world. I feel like sometimes we're so closed off and so centered in what's going on here in the U.S. and in our day-to-day lives, which is a lot. There's so many so many social issues to deal with and um, address that it becomes kind of exhausting sometimes, But and people don't know about what's going on in other parts of the world. So just using my platform and having other people use their platforms to share within their networks, that's just what gets the conversation going. Agreed. And, and sort of last question along those lines is, you know, you're, you're organizing in the U.S., you're leading protests here. I mean, how can listeners help you out? And what do you think people should be doing and saying to raise awareness about what's happening in Sudan? I think people can just write to their senators and congressmen to, you know, take it from an, uh, a point of international diplomacy. You know, we, as a U- in the U.S., we have leaders who will you know, who are there to listen to our voices and to see that the U.S. is contributing positive things. And I'm American just as much as I am Sudanese. And I think people, if they just keep using, like, check in with the hashtags, share reports, any media access, any press coverage we can get, that helps so much. And, you know, we're organizing protests that are happening actually globally. I've seen they're in D.C., Canada, New Zealand, all over the world. The diaspora has, Germany even has, organized, I want to say, numerous protests in correlation to what's happening. So every single time there's a big protest in Sudan, I've seen two or three pop up around the world. Mm-hmm. I'm also, you know, as in an organization moving forward Sudan that I oversee, we are um, planning an event, an educational event coming up to kind of just talk about the uprisings in Sudan, the history of them. So because this isn't the first one, the Sudanese People have overthrown a government before through peaceful protests and revolutions, just like this one. So just keeping the conversation going. We've created a website to to kind of just house a, like the resource, as many resources about what's going on. People have shared their art and creativity to kind of express their sentiments. 
as well. That's great. That's cool. Wafa, thank you so much for helping us understand what's going on. If there's anything else we can do, I'd love to have you back and keep an eye on what's happening in Sudan because it is very important. It's important to the world. So thank you for all your work. Of course. Thank you so, so much for speaking with me, and I'm happy to be back whenever. All right, great. Have a great week, everybody. Talk to you next week.